So I know that right now, when we think about waiting, as we think about during this Advent season, uh, waiting on the coming of the Lord, recognizing Israel's long wait for the Messiah, uh, our celebration that that wait has come to an end, but also recognizing the wait that we are now in, waiting for God to finish what he started with Jesus on that first Christmas morning, for him to come back and make a new heaven and a new earth, uh, to invite us into heaven with him for eternity. As we think about that waiting and anticipation, you might be reminded of different things that you've waited about, different things that you've anticipated. Uh, Maybe you can go back to when you were a child and you anticipated Christmas Day, looking forward to that for days on end, maybe having a calendar that you X'd out the days leading up to Christmas morning when you could come and unwrap the presents. Even more so for me when I was a kid, though, there was a day I waited for with more anticipation, and it was usually around the end of May, and that was the last day of school. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Um, Summer was upon us on that day. There was no feeling like, especially if it was an early release, which it normally was at our school, uh, you get that, you're there until noon, you basically don't do anything that half day, uh, and then you go out and you're free. Uh, You know, the sun hits you in the face, Uh, The wind uh, lifts you up off the ground because you're just so happy and so joyful uh, to not be in school any longer. Uh, I know my wife still enjoys that feeling as a teacher, uh, looking forward to that day. I could see it on her face now that she's already anticipating that day. Uh, It is a day that uh, many students wait for eagerly all the way going back to August when the day first starts. When we anticipate something, there's an excitement about that day coming. But there's also sometimes, and most of the time really, when we anticipate something and understanding that some difficulty lies between us and that which we anticipate. If it is the end of school, you know that tests have to be taken, grades have to be made, and you look forward to what comes after that, but you know that to get to that, you have to go through some other things. Especially if you're looking forward to graduation, whether it be high school or college, you know that tests that papers, that hard grades have to be made, uh, that maybe bills have to be paid if you're in college, paperwork has to be filled out, that there is some difficulty lying between you and that which you anticipate. If you're looking forward to a new job, you know that you're going to have to get uh, uh, broke into a new culture. You're going to have to understand new system new ways of doing business, operating with new people. Uh, That happens when we encounter a new career and we look forward to that with anticipation when we know that there's difficulty as well. If you're about to welcome a child into the world, whether whether that is through, through carrying that child and then birthing him or her into the world or maybe through adoption or some other process, you know that there are things that have to be done, not all of them enjoyable, between now and the day that that child is with you a vacation, time off, time away. We anticipate those kind of events, but we also know that we have to work to make money to be able to go on those vacations. There are difficulties that lie between us and those things that we anticipate. As we think about the anticipation of the coming of Jesus, the coming that we already celebrate on Christmas morning, as well as the coming when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. As we anticipate that, we look forward to that day knowing that it will be a day of joy. And on this third Sunday of Advent, that is what we celebrate, the joy of the Christmas story. But we also recognize that there is difficulty between now and that day. 
Between now and the day that Jesus returns, between now and the day that Jesus perfects the church, there are things that we're going to have to walk through that aren't necessarily fun to anticipate. And so with that anticipation, perhaps comes a little bit of anxiety as well about thinking about the things that we have to cross off the list before we get to where we know God wants to take us. But still we anticipate with joy. So far this, this last few weeks, we've talked about the hope that we have in Jesus. We saw Jesus in John chapter two turn water into wine and him being the source of, 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 of joy and celebration uh, and, and, and a God who is there to make sure that his children enjoy him, enjoy his gifts, enjoy the life that he's given. And we have hope in this Jesus because when that Jesus is there, there's always hope. The party's never going to stop. He keeps things going. We can always hope in Jesus. And then last week we looked at the love of God present through the Christmas story, focusing through Isaiah 49 and how even more so than a mother nursing a child, God God cares for us and he will never leave us. He will never forget us. He actually came for us. And that is the essence of the Christmas story. And again, today in Psalm 30, we talk about the joy that we have to experience in Jesus. And whether it be awaiting for the second coming of Jesus or for our turn to go home and be with him in eternity, or whether it is just looking at the end of a certain season of life, as many of us are doing now, anticipating an end to this current chaotic season in our world and in our American culture. As we look to that end, we know that joy is coming. We know that there is, that joy is a future certainty for a Jesus follower. It's not a mere whim or wish or hope. Joy is a future certainty for a Jesus follower. Let's read Psalm 30, but before we do that, let's pray together one more time. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for your presence here through your Holy Spirit. God, I pray now that you would, through your spirit, remove distraction from our midst. God, clear our minds and our hearts so that we might focus on what it is you have to teach us this morning. God, we thank you for your good and perfect word. And God, we pray that you would speak through it directly to us so that your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, might do a work of transformation within us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the 30th Psalm, this is a Psalm of David, reads like this. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. <clears throat> To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and have clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
If you are reading in the English Standard Version or any other version that gives headings to the Psalms, uh, like my English Standard Version, uh, there's probably something, like it says in mine, that a Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Now, if you understand the history of the Old Testament, that might cause you a little bit of pause uh, because, well, Solomon's the one that built the temple, not David. So you might be wondering what's up with that. Uh, So perhaps scholars think that maybe this was David celebrating the building of the palace and kind of recognizing that as God's blessing on his life. Uh, Or maybe it had something to do with the tabernacle and erecting that, that David was praising God for that. Or one of the many other praiseworthy instances uh, that David had throughout the story of the Old Testament. But one interpretation that I really enjoy, and you could take this for what you will because it's not in the black and white, it's just kind of one guy's opinion that I'm sharing with you. Uh, But one interpretation is that perhaps David wrote this psalm and was thinking about the dedication of the temple uh, and wrote it in anticipation for Solomon's completion of the temple. Uh, And so looking forward to what his son would do in completing the temple, David writes these words, praising God for what he knows is going to happen. Uh, Again, if you know the story, you know that David is not allowed to build the temple. Um, God basically tells him, you have too much blood on your hands. You were a warring man. And so your son needs to be the one that does this. But it's not as if David doesn't put in some input. Uh, David uh, at least passes along some plans and ideas to Solomon along the way. And so perhaps David is looking forward to this day of completion of the temple. Whatever it is, though, David is celebrating something that God has done and a realization of God's blessing on his life, despite difficulty surrounding him. It's a theme throughout the Psalms, that no matter what difficulty surrounds the psalmist, they still stop and give praise to God for his goodness. David depicts Jesus or God as drawing him up. You have drawn me up, it says. This idea of drawn up, uh, it basically has the, the idea of pulling something or someone out of a well. So literally, as we see later in the psalm, pulling someone out of a pit someone has fallen in a well, you might draw them up. Or if you were drawing water from the well, you would use that same kind of terminology. And so David, recognizing that through some sort of calamity that he had fallen into a pit of despair, that he had fallen into a place of of sadness and mourning, that God was there to draw him up from such a place, to pull him out of that pit. David talks about being healed. So maybe there was some kind of sickness that David was literally dealing with, or maybe there's uh, more of a metaphorical understanding of God blessing him in some way. But whatever it was, David felt that he had been rescued by God from the jaws of death, basically. He refers to the pit and refers to Sheol and how God had saved him from those places. Sheol was the abode of the dead. It's where dead people went as far as Old Testament folks were concerned. Uh, And so David was saved from that by God's hand, by God pulling him out of whatever predicament he was in. And so for this, God deserves praise. For this, God deserves David's rejoicing to respond to what God has done and the good that God is. He says in beautiful poetry, David says, his anger is but for a moment. His anger only lasts for a moment, verse 5, and his favor is for a lifetime. God is definitely capable of expressing anger. 
We see that in scripture. We see God express anger against his people. We see the, obviously the flood narrative. We see many other examples of God expressing his wrath against humanity. It would be uh, uh, ridiculous of me to stand before you and say that God never gets angry. God obviously expresses anger. And the word, the Hebrew word for anger here, it has something about the nose in it. Uh, and, and what that basically, would, it would be like the, 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 the way that your middle of your face gets red and you kind of crinkle everything up when you get angry. It's kind of what the Hebrew word connotes here. Uh, and so you can imagine that, right? So when, uh, you, your nose just kind of crinkles. Maybe you've seen that face in someone recently. Uh, maybe, hopefully not. Maybe you've seen it on yourself in the mirror. Uh, maybe you've felt it and you can feel, you know, when you can, you get so angry, you can just kind of feel the blood rushing to your face. You know what I'm talking about? None of y'all get that angry, of course, um, but you've probably driven in, in the area recently. So I would imagine that uh, you've probably got angry and when you get that angry that it, you can see it on your face. Okay, y'all be real with me for a moment, okay? I know that, that, that we exist in this space uh, and, I, and I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that many of you live with people who get angry at you every now and then. Can I get an amen on that one at least? Oh, right, here we are. You're with me now. All right. So you live with people that get angry at you on occasion, and probably you can see it on their face when they're angry with you. You know what I'm talking about, right? You get home after a long day, you walk in, you look at the person you love the most in the entire world, and you see something otherworldly glaring back at you. You know what I'm talking about, right? Or you see your children angry about something, angry at each other, and you can just see this look on their face like, Oh man, I know what God must have seen when he looked at Cain and Abel, right? Like you just see this look that could kill, right? It feels that way. And you don't know what to do in that situation. So you start talking fast and you start making apologies and trying to figure out what was wrong. And then if you say the right thing or you figure out the right phrase or you, you do the right thing, then suddenly the face softens, right? The countenance softens. And you take a deep breath. And you say, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. I can step into this. Like it's not a dangerous situation anymore. So that's kind of the picture that's painted. That God's like, well, he gets angry, but it's for a moment. And then his, his goodness always returns. His forgiveness always comes in. Uh, he is so wrathful with us but he sends his son to bear that wrath so that you and I don't have to. And he pours his wrath out on his son. Isaiah 53 says that God was pleased to crush Jesus on the cross. He gives that wrath upon Jesus so that sin and wrath might be dealt with once and for all. And so that to us, he might be good for a lifetime and then some. God's anger is momentary but then his goodness lasts for a lifetime. And just like his anger is momentary, so is our weeping and mourning. It says, though weeping may last through the night, joy comes in the morning. Many of you might be reminded of that old 90s praise song, Trading My Sorrows, right? Though the weeping may last through the night, joy comes in the morning. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what we have to look forward to in heaven. That although there is difficulty now, we know that joy comes in the morning. And that's the way I've usually heard that scripture interpreted and taken to heart. Is that yes, life is difficult, but joy is coming in heaven. I don't really think that's David's point though. I mean, it's true that joy is coming in heaven. But David isn't talking about some future 
you know, dispensation of God's grace. Uh, he's talking about what God has already done for him, that God has met him with joy right where he is, that he is rejoicing in the meantime, maybe because of what God is going to do, but also because of what God has done, because of what God has delivered him from, because the night that God has directed him through. And so it would be wrong to interpret this just as looking forward to heaven, when in reality what David is saying to all of us and what God is saying through this word is that weeping and mourning are unavoidable parts of life for Christians, but they always come with an expiration date. They will come to an end. Your time of sorrow, your time of darkness, your time of weeping, your time of frustration, that time that you can, some of you can look back on in your life that some of you are in the middle of right now where it just doesn't seem like anything makes sense, where everything hurts and you can't seem to find joy in anything, that season has an expiration date. Can I get an amen on that? That is good news. That time will come to an end and joy will take its place. Joy is a future certainty for a Jesus follower, not just some mere hope on a whim. It is something that, <clears throat> excuse me, it is something that God promises us, a promise that we can count on. The weeping may last through the night, joy comes in the morning. You know those really cold mornings? If you ever wake up early, if you go deer hunting or something else, and you're out, and you're up really early, that it's those last few moments before the sun finally peaks over the horizon that are the absolute coldest. I've experienced that in a deer stand. Maybe some of you have experienced that at work or somewhere else, where it's just like the cold seeps in, and especially if you're, you're hunting deer, you're just sitting there, and you're, all you're doing is waiting so that you can see enough to hope that there's deer out there, right? And you're just sitting and waiting, and the cold seeps in, and it gets stronger and stronger until finally the sun peaks up over the horizon. It's that same kind of picture with joy. We know that it's coming. Just like you can see the signs that the sun is, is, is going to rise. Uh, the, 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 the western horizon begins to turn pink and, and, or excuse me, the eastern horizon begins to turn pink and purple as you, you look and you await the rising of the sun. You know that, that, that it's coming. You know that people to the east of you have already seen it coming. Uh, you know that it's going to come. You've, you've, you've seen it a thousand times. You've, you've heard testimony about the sun rising. You know that it's going to come and you just sit there and, and wait. Even though you're going through difficulty and darkness and cold right now, you're waiting on that sun to rise. In the same way, we know that God will deliver us. But right now we might be in the midst of that cold and dark waiting holding on, seeing the signs that he's coming, but him not yet here with us today, but we know that he's coming. David then moves on and begins to talk more about God's deliverance of him. In verse six, we kind of see this presumptuousness of David. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall not be moved. We kind of get the picture that David is painting that, well, he, he reached a point in his life when he thought everything would be fine. Uh, that by his own strength he could handle it. I will not be moved. Nothing is going bad is going to happen to me. But then God hides himself for a season. And so David is moved to cry out to God, to ask him to show himself, to ask him to bring healing and mercy. And even in David's request, even in his plea for God to help him, he even kind of shows a little bit of fallenness and a little bit of selfishness. Let me read the passage again. Verse 8. 
To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? In other words, David is basically saying to God, what good am I to you dead? Don't you need me to praise you? Will the dust praise you if I'm gone? Who will praise you, O God? And of course, we don't have God standing in heaven or sitting in heaven thinking, oh, if David's not there to praise me, what will I do? Who will praise me? Jesus tells us very clearly in the Gospels that even the rocks will cry out if everyone else is silent. We see time and time again, even in the Psalms themselves, that all creation praises God. It is not just David alone that praises God. His praise is not that noteworthy uh, that God could not live without it, that God is in need of it. So it's even kind of a selfish request. Like, God, what are you going to do without me? You need me, man. So save me. Be merciful to me. Help me out here is basically what David asked. But aren't we grateful that God answers imperfect calls for help? Are we grateful that God is gracious in our selfishness? Because I don't know about you, I've probably said something along the same lines to God before. Like, God, man, I really, you really need to use me this way, or, or, or God, I, I really need this blessing, and, and if you'll bless me, then, then I'll do this and this and this, and who's going to do that for you if not, if not me, right? Like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to live, and God, if you don't do this for me, then, then I don't know who else will looking at ourselves, but yet God answers imperfect calls for help. As a matter of fact, every call for help ever uttered to God has been imperfect because it's been uttered by a human mouth. God save me despite my sinfulness. God save me despite my selfishness. God, don't take into account all of the bad things about me. Just please help me out and God, often answers and I'm grateful that God answers and I'm even more grateful for the times that God doesn't answer because that's not what I need and I get something else instead God answers imperfect calls for help and knowing that God does so David continues with his praise David talks about how God turns mourning into dancing again another beautiful metaphor Psalms are poetry and you can see it jumping off the page in the imagery of what David is depicting. Mourning was something that Jews did with their whole body. They would tear their garments. They would cover themselves with sackcloth, as is mentioned here in just a moment. Cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes. They would throw themselves on the ground, prostrate to mourn and weep and wail. It was a whole body involvement when Jews would mourn. And so it only makes sense that in that context, God would depict, or David would depict God changing that behavior into one that's another full body expression, which is dancing before the Lord. And David, of course, did that. We know that David danced before the ark of the Lord as he brought it back into the city. We could see David respond in that way. Maybe perhaps he's, he's recollecting that event as he writes these words. He turns our mourning into dancing. And then it says, and I want to get this correct, you have loosed, this is in verse 11, you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Sackcloth was something Jews wore. It was rough on the skin. It reminded them of a mourning, of a, of a difficult time. Um, and, and, and it was kind of a, almost like self-punishment, but a way just to remind them of, of, of the way they felt inside by depicting it on the outside. 
So what, what God is saying through David is that basically you, you've changed me from the inside out. Like you've gotten rid of the grave clothes. You've gotten rid of the mourning attire. Uh, we're no longer in that outfit where we mourn and we weep. Instead, God has clothed us with gladness instead of sackcloth. He has sent us out different. The place of your deepest pain may one day be a source of spirit-filled joy for you. The place of your deepest pain. I know that from experience of people who have experienced very deep pain looking back on that and seeing God at work. I can see that in my own life as well, that some of the most painful circumstances and times that I've walked through, now that I can look back on them with a little bit of clarity and hindsight because I've been separated from the drama of that event, I can look back and I can see God at work. And I can stop and give rejoicing to him for what he has done and for how he pulled me through that. I might not have known I was in a pit at that moment, but when God pulled me out, I could see the beauty of that rescue of a God who comes for us. And I respond with joy, with rejoicing. Yes, it was difficult, but God was good to me, and for that, he deserves my praise. You know, we're still in the midst, many of us in our own personal lives, and it seems like collectively, in our, in our current state in the world, we are in the midst of a, of a night, of a tearful night where weeping persists, where there's frustration and anger and destruction all around. And we don't necessarily know what to do in the night. Nobody knows necessarily what to do in the dark because that's the nature of the dark. You can't really see in the dark. We don't have a healthy appreciation for the dark in our contemporary Western culture because we could turn on light at the push of a button. I was thinking about this earlier and I can remember um, back in the good old days, uh, when the electricity would go out and you would have to go find a flashlight. Remember that? Uh, you'd have to go scrambling around in the dark looking for a flashlight. Now, everybody has one on their phone in their pocket and just, you know, oh, hold on, you know, click, uh, we're fine. Uh, everybody's got light. Uh, and then, oh, I'm about to run out of battery. Oh, I have, I can go in my car and I can plug it in there because that's a battery. Or I have one of those little things that I can plug my phone into that just has power stored inside of it. We're back in Jesus' day, they hadn't harnessed anything with electricity, and so everything was oil light, a lantern, or a candle. That was their best bet against the light. Uh, that was why uh, I, was, I was reading a book uh, uh, not that long ago about hurry in our culture, uh, and how one of the things that uh, causes us to hurry is how we don't have to experience darkness anymore. Uh, in, the, in ages past, uh, when, when the light went out at night, people just went to bed. And so you read these stories about uh, these wonderful men and women of God who would get up at like 4.30, 5.30 every morning and, and you beat yourself up because you think, oh gosh, so that's why I can't be spiritual enough because they wake up at 4.30 or 5.30 in the morning. But what you don't remember in that is that they went to bed at seven o'clock because it was dark outside, right? And they didn't have anything else to do so they just went to bed. That's why they could wake up at 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning uh, because that's when the sun was coming up. What a novel idea to let that big ball of fire in the sky decide when we rise and when we go to bed. 
What a wonderful thing to actually think about. But we don't have to do that in our culture. We can go all night long if we want to. Uh, we can, we can, electricity can allow us to go 24-7 literally. The only thing we need to stop for is when our body completely falls apart and we finally succumb to sleep. But that's how productive we are in our society. So we don't even understand darkness, true darkness. The only time I've experienced is at the bottom of a cavern. If you've ever gone and visited any of the many caverns, usually when you get to the bottom of it, <clears throat> before you turn around and go back out, uh, the God will tell everybody to turn off their helmets, their lights, whatever. They'll turn off their light and you get to experience cave darkness, which is so dark that even if you kept your eye open and you touched your eye with your index finger, you wouldn't see your index finger coming because there's zero light. That's the kind of darkness that we're talking about here where you can't feel your way around. You don't know which way's up. You don't know how to get out of a lost situation. Sometimes it feels like we're still in the middle of that where weeping and mourning persist. But what I can promise you is that that darkness has an expiration date, that it will come to an end forever in heaven. But I firmly believe that God did not design you to sit in darkness your whole earthly life. And that while he may allow you to go through a season where weeping and mourning persist, joy will come for you in the morning. You don't have to wait until you die. I don't know how long you have to wait. I don't know when that expiration date is, but I know that joy is coming, that it is a certainty for a Jesus follower. You know, I read an interesting poll this week, and some of you may have seen it posted online. It was a poll done by the Gallup organization. Uh, Gallup does a, a ton of different research throughout the year, especially for businesses. Uh, but every year since 2001, uh, they have done a poll to gauge America's mental health. And it's no surprise uh, that the worst year on record uh, was the discovery they found in November of this year, the, the, the poll that they convicted conducted in November of 2020. Not only was it the worst year ever, uh, basically they asked a couple questions, uh, and the, the, the graphic that I was looking at was based upon the question, would you rate your mental health as excellent? It dropped by like 13 points from 2019 to 2020 with just Americans in general. And they divided it up by several demographics as well. They divided it up by age, by gender, uh, by ethnicity, uh, by political affiliation, uh, and one other that I'll tell you about in just a second. Across all of those demographics, everything fell. Some fell more than others. Uh, this is November of 2020 when they did it, so you can imagine uh, Republicans fell a lot more than Democrats during that time for obvious reasons. Uh, and, and men and women responded differently. But every single one of those demographics trended downward. The only single demographic that actually trended upward over 2020, the only people who were more likely to respond, yes, my mental health is excellent, is people who attended religious services weekly. Now, I think that's kind of cool, if you ask me. When every other single demographic was more depressed or their mental health was worse off than it was the year before, the only one that went up was people who went to a religious service weekly. And it went up to such a degree that now the most likely people in the United States of America in 2020 to say that their mental health is excellent is people who go to a religious service at least once a week. 
you're, if you are here weekly, statistically, according to Gallup, you are the most likely demographic in the country to be mentally excellent. Now, I think that there's something about that, right? Uh, there's something about a joy that persists when everything else is going down. There's something about a joy that persists even in a story about the story of, of Jesus' birth. It's a wonderful story. But have you read all of it? Have you read the part about the Bethlehem massacre and the ridiculous horror that happened because Herod was an evil dictator who was afraid that someone was going to come in and unseat him and that the Jesus child, the Christ child, might be that person? It's a terrible story, yet joy persists. But not only that, joy continued to persist, despite the way that the, uh, the Jews of Jesus' day were ridiculed and were persecuted by the Roman authorities, despite the fact that they were, many of them were, had nothing uh, except maybe the clothes on their back and enough to get by through the day in order to make it to the next day, despite the fact that Jesus himself was led to the cross to die an innocent yet murderous death, joy persisted. And even when that Jesus was put into the grave, and a stone was rolled and he was left dead forever, or so we thought, joy persisted. Joy persisted enough for God to breathe life back into the dead body and for him to breathe life into each and every single one of us, figuratively speaking in our spirit, that God allowed joy to persist no matter how bad the circumstances got. And so for those of us who really believe this story, that Jesus came for us, that Jesus died for us, and that Jesus has risen again to live eternally, for those of us who really believe that story, it should be no surprise that when everybody else is trending down, we are trending up. Can I get an amen on that one? Because we cannot suppress the joy that is in Christ. You can literally kill it and stick it in the ground for dead, and it will still come back for some more. The joy of our Lord is our strength. And while weeping may persist in the night, joy comes in the morning. Joy is coming. That is certain. For those of you who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus, I would love to talk to you about what that could look like in your life. If you're here this morning and that's who you are, I would love to talk to you about what it would mean to know Jesus as Savior and to follow him as such. I'll be down here as we sing our last song. You can come and talk to me and pray with me then, or you can find me after the service. I'll be around here at the front. For those of you who are joining us online, if you ever want to ask uh, about what it means to know Jesus as Savior, uh, just message us on Facebook or call the church office uh, and let us know that you have that question and we'll, we'll reach out uh, and try to, try to help you out with that. And for those of you who do have a saving relationship with Jesus, if you find yourself in the middle of a bleak situation, I'm here to tell you not just when heaven comes, but before then too, that that situation has an expiration date. Morning will come and joy will come with it. May we rejoice in that Lord as we sing this last song together. And if you need to pray about this or anything else, I'll be standing right here to do that with you while we sing and I'll hang around after the service as well. But let's stand together, I'm gonna pray. The guys are gonna lead us in that last song. And as they do, 
May you respond with joy for the God who has saved us from the pit. Father, we again thank you for who you are and for what you have done, for saving us despite the fact that we do not deserve it. God, I pray now that you would fill us with the fruit of your spirit that is joy. God, that despite our circumstances, God, that you would lead us to joy, a joy that is indescribable, that can't be explained, a joy that surpasses our understanding. God, may you fill us with that joy and may we, may it be in us to such a degree that it is contagious and that we give that joy to others. God, you are good and worthy of our praise. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.